Australian Rescue Podcast. Well, hello again and welcome to another episode of the Australian Rescue Podcast. Steve Monner is my name and uh, tell you what, uh, last episode we had Gary Raymond on who is a Chief Inspector, uh, now retired from the Sydney Police Rescue Squad and we got to hear uh, some insights in his story, not only what he did uh, before he joined Police Rescue as a volunteer ambulance worker um, with St John, but also... Um, we also really got to hear a first-hand account from the Granville train rail disaster. Because we ran out of time last time, we are going to continue the story with Gary, and today we are going to hear more of his story. Uh, we're going to hear how things were when he was climbing through carriages. We're also going to hear what it was like catching up with survivors. And uh, once again, you're even going to hear more of Gary's Christian faith come through as well. And like I said, it is an important part of his story. So I thought, let's leave it in. We really do want to hear stories. And this is Gary's story. Gary is also a chaplain. And if you do want to get in contact with uh, Gary, you can do so at his Facebook page. You can search for him at LinkedIn and so on. Uh, But he's a very approachable guy. And I encourage you, if you do need to have a chat with anybody, particularly regarding big issues um, and critical incident stress events, well, Gary can be your man to go to and have a great chat to him. He's in the Sydney region in Australia, so if you're in that area and you do need a chat, I'm sure it'd be obliging to uh, have a word with you for sure. Well, that's enough for me talking. Let's get into it. This is part two of Gary Raymond at the Granville Train Disaster. Just back to the disaster for two seconds because I know this you know we all go to lots of jobs and quite often we never ever follow up on the people that were involved and things um, because it's a job if you get involved it's emotional and, and so on and so on and it's just something I've found it's a job you do the job you go home and back to normal life you've gone down the path as well chaplain welfare officer and things and you talk to a lot of people post retirement you know i mean you've seen everything these days um just about i mean i i did want to inquire about some of the other dangers you had on scene particularly i know i'm shifting topics but because i did read about things of dangers that were on scene the bridge is moving you know you had live electricity wise um i heard of gas we there were so many things you couldn't do but it it stuns me actually that you were sleeping next to the train. But um, you know what? What else was there? Because you probably broke all the OHS rules <laughs> that we can imagine. Yeah, the bridge. Um, when the train came down the tracks, Steve, it left the tracks, and what said uh, a little while ago was right. It was uh, preventable. That's what makes me so angry. The lead wheels on the locomotive were worn down, and the tracks were worn down, and tracks sort of separated, uh, lost their geometry, and the train slipped off the tracks and hit the staunchion or the support, steel support, and knocked that out from under the bridge, and then it came to a stop and derailed, or derailed and came to a stop, I should say. 
tick, 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 tick. About 30 to 40 seconds later, the bridge, which was, number one, overloaded with bitumen and concrete, they put extra load on the bridge to build it up to road level some years before that. And, uh, and so it was only resting on a course of bricks either side, roughly about, um, you know, a, a foot or so. And, uh, and I guess uh, what happened then, the bridge broke its back and came down. And if people look up Google and look up the Granville train disaster, they'll be able to see the configuration of the bridge. And so it was still up on the southern side, but had come down on the northern side. So it was still very dangerous and just resting on literally bricks. And so we had to get under the bridge with the thought that we'd stay very low because it could come down at any stage on that southern side. Crawling through there too, uh, we it was very rugged and things had snapped and broken timber and broken metal and, and it was very uh, difficult to get through because of the sharp edges. It was a hot summer's day too, wasn't it? So it'd be very hot. Yeah, it was 18th of January. Yeah, it's very hot. It was... Uh, middle of summer. Yeah, in the middle of summer. And then we heard, I smelled a smell. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's LPG, liquid petroleum gas. So where would that come from? And uh, it was, we could smell it coming through underneath the bridge in the carriages. And we know now, the and rightly so, there's no issue with this, the trains would have gas cylinders in little cupboards at the end of the carriages to run. Remember the gas heaters that used to be in trains? Oh, wow. And uh, up in the Blue Mountains, they'd light the, light the heaters up and warm the carriages before it went down to pick up passengers in the in winter's mornings. And during summer, they just stored the cylinders in the cupboards, locked, locked up, of course. Mm. But when the bridge came down on the carriages, it crushed the cylinders and broke them open. Mm. Now... Oh, people probably realise that with gas, if you get the right air mixture, air and gas mixture, and you get one little spark, LP gas just goes, we call it a blevy, and it'll just go absolutely horrific explosion. And uh, people might have seen on news and, and so on with gas explosions, although it might be different sort of gas. But So immediately we yelled out, Turn your torches off, because at that stage we didn't have gas-proof torches. And so stop the equipment. Don't use any equipment that produces a spark. Even something slipping like a jack that may produce a spark, uh, we had to be just stop everything. And we ended up in the dark, uh, feeling our way around using pocket knives to cut things and, uh, and and. even mechanical saw blades, we couldn't risk... Uh, sorry, manual. Manual saw blades, all, all mechanical. We couldn't risk a spark. So thank goodness our mates from the fire brigade had a foam generator, they call it. It's like a... And you'll see photos on Google of Granville. It's a big square silver fan. And see, it doesn't run on a motor. It runs on a hose. The hose goes on top of it. And the water spins the fan, which evacuated the gas. Yeah. And uh, then we got the all clear that we could then use our gear again. 
But during the rescue, the second thing that happened, which was very risky, the late Sergeant Joe Beecroft, who was in charge of the police rescue squad, he came crawling in beside me and he whispered so none of the injured people could hear. He said, Gaz, the bridge is slipping. The engineers and surveyors say that it might crash down on the southern side and it'd be very dangerous for you to be in here. You've got to get out. And I, I thought, what? This is running through my mind. I thought, I've got to get out. Hang on a minute. I've been with these people for a number of hours now and I've told them all that I'm going to safely get them out of there. And now he's telling me to, to get out and leave all these trapped people alone by themselves. And I, and I just whispered in his ear, I said, uh, no, Joe, well, I'll just stick around. I'll get really low. I'll get really down low. And if it slips, I'll be okay. He said, no. The engineer said that if it slips, everyone under there probably will get mm. killed. And I said, not if I get really between the girders, you, you know, the RSJs yep. as we call them, right down low. Now, see, our sergeants in police rescue, because we're a very elitist team, we're, they were like fathers to us. We're like father and sons. And uh, we learned a lot from them. We protected each other and it was a good bond. So it was always Joe and Gary, not Sergeant Constable. Suddenly he whispered in my ear with force, Constable Raymond, I order you, I direct you to get out from under this bridge now. And I thought, whoa. I, I turned around and whispered back in his ear, right as Sergeant. And I, I couldn't tell you the pain I had at leaving, I just said to Debbie and the others trapped, I said, look, I've got to leave for a little while, but I'll be back. And I think I might have um, made an excuse. I had to go to the toilet or something like that. Although um, we stayed in there and if we wanted to do a, you know, if we wanted to urinate, there was a crack in the floor of the train and we just urinated through that. But I, um, during the rescue when we had to, because we couldn't get out, it took a long time to get out and get in from those uh, confined spaces. So gradually I got myself out and I was so cranky that I, I left my little pen torch with Debbie and some others there. And you know what I did? I just paced up and down the railway tracks beside the carriage while our, our wonderful engineers propped up that side of, of the bridge uh, with various things like timbers and props and wedges and all sorts of things they used. And then finally the whistle went, go back in, all stable, and go back in under the under the bridge, into the car. Well, I was like, as we often say as Aussies, like a rat up a drain pipe. And I went in there and I crawled through. Pretty ticked off, it sounds. Yeah, I was. I was cranky because I just thought, oh, you know what, I'd never in my ambulance career you know, in the ambulance before the police, nor police rescue, ever, ever left an injured person or never left a victim of crime that needed my protection and safety and help. Never, ever left anybody. And it's the first time I've been asked to leave trapped and injured people alone in a dark, confined space. And I, I just it really, really caused a lot of pain. But anyway, I crawled through and I saw my little torch on. So I crawled through and reached where the torch was and then came across those 
of course, Debbie and others and Erica that we've been working on. And do you know what it reminds me of today? See, when Jesus left, he ascended into heaven on his resurrection, of course, after he's been around a little while. And he, he ascended to heaven and he said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And then he said, I'm going to return. Now, a lot of people are getting impatient with his return or even some think, oh, no, he won't return. And they're getting, I guess, disbelief or unbelief. But I, I know that Jesus will return. He promised to return, and it's not that far off, I believe. I don't know when, but certainly it's heading towards that event. And I said to Debbie, I said, I'm back, Debbie. You know what she said, Steve? She said, I knew you'd be back. Mm. And that's the trust and that faith and that certainty that we should have with Christ's return. He said he's coming, and we believe that, and he will. And so it was good to get back and start the rescue again in a safer environment. How many times did you have to do that? Because I actually did read somewhere that uh, there were a couple of rescuers that were injured. Yeah, it was um, one of our blokes. Um, he was in a very contorted area uh, for a long period of time, and he hurt his back. And there was another volunteer rescuer from the Penrith Volunteer Rescue Squad who got uh, a good whiff of gas, LPG gas. And uh, But thankfully, uh, I got a few bruises myself from getting my arms into uh, confined spaces and, and myself. But no, we had no one else severely injured at all. Gary, what else uh, have you been doing since since this kind of thing? Um, because I've I noticed recently that um, the, the New South Wales government uh, officially apologised in May 2017. Uh, that was this year. Um to all the victims involved in that. And I sort of think, well, that's wonderful that they can do this. Uh, I saw video footage of you actually being there. They've had uh, nice memorial plaques and things that have been there. How much does this help um, the recovery process? I mean, um, you mentioned before that you're fine uh, off air. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, you've worked through all this kind of thing. You're fine. But how does it go? I mean, why did you find yourself back there, even as one of the rescuers and not one of the victims, say, uh, to the memorial service? Yeah, each 18th of January at um, Bold Street, Granville, where the bridge is, they've put up a new bridge, of course, there's a memorial wall there. It's just out the front of the new Granville police station. And uh, every year on that day, the 18th, whatever day it falls on, the, we gather together and uh, it's interesting that there's the rescuers come there the victims, uh, those who survived, of course, and the families of those who lost their lives and the survivors, and the general community. Uh, we've had uh, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. We've had the Premier, Mike Baird, and then, of course, Lotus, um, Barry Chicklian. We've had commissioners of police ambulance. And we've had the community that gathered around on that day. We have a memorial. We ring the bell. Uh, 83 times, or this coming year, 84, because we discovered, as I mentioned before, that one of the ladies were pregnant and lost a little baby. And so we ring the bell for each of them, and then we then have what we call Day of the Roses. Uh, Everybody there gets a single rose, and uh, we go across to the bridge, and on 
on a signal, everybody then throws their roses down onto the railway tracks in memory of those who lost their lives there. It's been really good to connect because um, there's often a special bond between rescuers and victims, if you like, or patients, whatever you want to use, it doesn't matter. And so that bond is, I shared a pretty critical incident with you and a horrific experience. Uh, it was certainly, it gives us a bond, it gives us a special gratefulness. Number one, the courage of the victims, I often say that, that people call us heroes in police rescue and the fire and the ambulance and, and so on, the volunteers. But I reckon the heroes out of Granville Train Disaster were those trapped in particular. Their courage, their, uh, I guess, their patience with us, their resilience, I'll never forget. And so we get together. And, and the other thing is, too, those who lost their lives, because I recovered their bodies, then the family have a special attachment to me because I was the one to recover them and I guess literally give them back to their families for burial or cremation, whatever the case might have been. And so we share a special grief and a special bond with them. I remember one particular, well, some years ago now, I was in the Granville Town Hall having a, some morning tea after the memorial service down at the bridge. And this lady came pushing through the crowd and she grabbed me and she cuddled me so tight and she was kissing me on the cheek and she said, you're Gary Raymond. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I was just told that you were the one that got my parents and my two daughters' bodies out of the train. She said, I just want to thank you for doing that. Now, this is interesting. She said to me, she said, I want to find out from you what you found. Now, often those left behind have a real deep need to find detail, even if it's unpleasant or uncomfortable or confronting, they need to know the detail. And so she said, come and have a cup of tea with me. And so we went into a bit of a corner and sat down with a cuppa. And she said, tell me, please. And I said, you're going to be amazed at this. The two girls were sitting on a seat facing the grandparents, or like her parents, their grand, their grand, the girls' grandparents. And when the train derailed, the grandparents grabbed one of the girls each and sat them on their lap and held them in a protective way. And, of course, as we know, I mentioned before, 30, 40 seconds later, the wreath came down and it crushed them all together. And, I mean, this sounds very tragic, but uh, it crushed the grandparents over onto the girls and they all really died together pretty well instantly. And I told this lady about that and I said, that's how I found your parents and your little girls. I said, in other words, your parents tried desperately to protect your little girls. And we were both in tears at that stage. And you know what? She smiled and she said, thank you. She said, I've been having terrible nightmares about my parents and my girls squashed all over the place. And I said, no, they were actually intact. So even though they were compressed and they died together, they were actually intact. And she said, 
thank you so much. Thank you. And even though that was an uncomfortable situation, the truth about what happened was comfort to her. And she contacted me later. She said, the nightmares that I'm having about my parents and my two daughters, I don't have them anymore. And she said, I've just got pleasant thoughts of them. And she said, I want to thank you for what you did. And so often getting together with rescuers and victims have a a really good outcome that we can fill in some blanks and we can tell them what happened. We can explain to them uh, some of our views, which will help their grief process and help to, like a jigsaw puzzle, they've often got missing pieces and fitting it in, they get the full picture and it, it is a comfort to them. Although it's still grieving and sad, of course. Yeah, I've um, it, it, I've it's been very rare that I've ever had um, you know, people come back and say thank you for the the jobs we've done. Um, but we had one job where a uh, a girl decided to drive in front of a train, took us an hour or more to actually get her out. She survived. Um, trouble was, it was a deliberate action on her part. But her dad came along a few weeks later and said thank you very much. She's still in ICU but she'll be fine. You know, and for us as well, I guess it, it was interesting to know what happened in that follow-up. But anyway, um, Gary, I, I do wonder though, um, we've heard a heck of a lot today um, and it's it's been wonderful. I do wonder though, yourself and, and Bill were the two responders in your own truck. I wonder though, how many other rescue responders suffered from that afterwards, you know, long-term PTSD or did that have an effect? Were you all pretty tough back then? Nobody told anybody, um, you know, what anybody was thinking or, you know, how did you lose anybody from the crew from that kind of thing? You know, wondering uh, how how it actually affected anybody. Yeah, we lost um, one of our fellows with that back injury. He couldn't do rescue or policing again and he went off with a back injury. The rest of us, we um, just continued doing rescues, and I think that's part of the hurling is to continue routine. Um, See, what happens with post-traumatic stress, or later on if people get a post-traumatic stress disorder, um, or what they call, there might be another one that's complicated PTSD, or complex PTSD, what happens is the brain fails to cope. In other words, the brain chemistry starts firing off the fight, flight, freeze or fracture hormones. And so it might be a sight sets it off, a sound, a smell, a touch, um, sets it off. It sets the brain into the fight or flight mode. In other words, the brain sees a challenge and fires off this chemistry. Now, a lot of post-trauma, a number of people, both victims and uh, some of the rescuers, uh, never caught a train since. Uh, one particular fellow that I know that was trapped in there, he can't even go under a bridge, like a railway bridge. He'll go kilometres around to avoid going under the bridge. Uh, others, they hear a noise of a train and the brain chemistry is triggered. Uh, so there's a song you might remember that says, always something there to remind me. And so when that trigger happens, you've got to learn to respond to it 
and and you can't control the chemical tsunami we call it, but you can control your response to it. So, and and see, there was an old an old wives' tale. Oh, we used to go down the pub afterwards and we'd debrief down there. Well, no, you didn't. Most of the time, when everyone went down the pub, whether they drank alcohol or diet coke, doesn't matter. But uh, when they went down to the pub, they talked about the cricket, the football, uh, had a whinge about the bosses down at, you know, the big bosses, or mm. talked about their girlfriends or, or slash wives or, you know, like talked about their families. They very rarely got talking about um, their feelings because in those days, the talk about your feelings wasn't manly. As a matter of fact, when I first went in the rescue squad, one of the sergeants said to me, listen, pal, you need to know that if this job upsets you, you're allowed to walk out the door. Or if we think that you're too upset to do the job, we'll tell you to walk out the door. Now, normally, police uh, uh, deployments, so you've got to do what they call a tenure, roughly it was within three years. So you have to stay in a station or squad for three years stability but the rescue squad they said you can walk out the door at any time you like and one of the other sergeants over a coffee said to me guys this is during my first day on police rescue and uh, he said guys remember this there is no one there is no police rescue to rescue police rescue in other words you can't fail because if you fail, who's going to come and get you? Because we're the end of the line. Rescue squads are the end of the line, not the beginning. And so I had this enormous pressure on us to perform, perform safely and uh, effectively. So, and then I guess too, Steve, I thought when I went to a fatality, I thought, oh, well, I can't do anything about this. This is out of my control. Um, I can't reverse this and... And people need to know, I suppose you know already, but life's only a play button. There's no pause. There's no rewind. There's no fast forward. It's a play button. And so uh, often you'd reflect on rescue missions and, and the what ifs. What if we'd have done that? What if we'd have done something else? What if? And so we carry a heavy responsibility of saving life and, and that property as well, I suppose. But what I found, what I found was interesting that um, when I became a Christian and I had a read of the book of Genesis and I used this in my chaplaincy, you talk about my chaplaincy today is in with the police post-trauma support groups uh, looking after cops who are suffering PTS or PTSD. When we look there, we find that everything was good. And a matter of fact, it says everything was very good. No death, no suffering, no bloodshed. But then suddenly... Adam and Eve disobeyed God deliberately. In other words, they cut him off and they decided to, to go without him. We know, we read in Genesis where that wasn't God's fault, that was our fault in Adam. Suddenly the whole thing crashed. And I, I, I did a job. I was working on, on a mission on the police helicopter. We were looking at doing a search. And we'd finished the search. We're heading back to base. And uh, the, the police radio called and said, any car in the vicinity 
of this particular place, right out the back of Windsor, there's a semi-trailer overturned. And so we called on Polly One. We're only a few minutes away. We'll duck in and see what we can do. So we we flew over the, the accident. And uh, although there's no such thing as an accident, we call them, should have called it a collision because, it, you know, an accident means nothing, but a collision means an act or an omission by somebody has caused this thing to happen. But anyway... Oh, politically correct. Politically now, correct. Collision, yeah, or yeah. or crash. So we circle and we finally looked that there was no one there except sort of people uh, stopping. Uh, so we landed and I took my medical kit and jumped the fence and went onto the roadway. And uh, there was a semi-trailer overturned. The driver was hanging uh, in his seatbelt. And as soon as I put my head in the cabin, uh, I just smelled alcohol, reeked of alcohol. And I, I thought, whoa, that smells. He smells like a brewery, as we say. So we mm. started to stabilise his neck before we lowered him out of the seatbelt. We put a spinal, uh, short spinal board on him and uh, immobilised his, his, his spine and brought him down onto the roof of the cabin of the truck and began to treat him for various other injuries. In his, in his sort of um, very faint voice, He's saying, my son, my son, my son. And I said, did you have someone else in the truck with you? Your son, did you? Yes, yes. Where is he? Where is he? And so I said to my mates, I said, hey, there's another one. Where is he? And so by that time, the uh, uh, nurse had pulled up and we said, sister, could you look after him? Just the ambos are on the way. Rescue's on the way. And we went looking around because there's an old saying that the um, the ambulance look at the patients and the cops look for the patients. And so we did a search and then suddenly I looked down and from under the roof of the truck I saw two little feet. Mm. And so we vigorous, we couldn't lift the truck because of its weight in the soft dirt. So we dug, dug out under the cabin and um, stacking some wedges in there and we pulled this body this dear little boy out and there was nothing we could do for him he was what we call beyond resuscitation and so with that I just took my flight jacket off and I put it over him over his face and uh, what we found out happened was this this fellow had said to his kid come on come with daddy on the truck school holidays yeah right oh so he's taken his son around showing him the big truck and what daddy does Daddy stopped in a hotel and had a good bit of booze with his mates, looked at his watch and realised he was late getting to the yard with the load. And if he didn't leave then and go for it, he would miss out getting his load into these premises before they lock up. And so he was really giving it a lot of speed and he turned over on a bend and rolled a few times. He had his seatbelt on, but he didn't put the seatbelt on his son. And his son was sadly and regrettably thrown out under the truck where he lost his life. Mm. And so I got really mad and we were all sort of really upset when, you know, what happened. So we got the driver out and then we got back in the chopper and we're flying back to base. The police officer in the back with me, a really good mate of mine, a really good, great, great guy. He turned around and we had our helmets on. He said in the intercom, hey, Gaz, I said, yeah, mate, 
said, where was your, and he swore, your effing God when this kid was crushed under the truck? And I said to him, I said, listen, mate, I said, God doesn't drive semi-trailers. And, and he looked at me, and I don't know why I said that, Steve. It just came off, off the, like a shot off the hip, you know. I said, God doesn't drive semi-trailers, mate. And with that, he stared at me, and he didn't talk to me all the way back. The only time he spoke was operational things for working on the helicopter. We landed, filled up with fuel, no talkie, checked our gear, no talkie. Went in to base, cooked some tea, no talkie. Uh, washed up, no talkie. Put the television on, sat, on, sat down, no talkie. And I thought, goodness, I've really offended him. I've really offended him. And I was saying in my heart, Lord, why did I say that? You know, why did I offend my mate? And I was really upset. As we're watching the television, Steve, he stood up and he walked over and he bashed the television off. There was a little switch on the front and pulled it off, pulled it on and off. He got the hand and went whack and it shook on the little uh, stand that it was on and he turned it off. He turned around, pointed at me, clicked his fingers and pointed at me and he swore again. He said, tell me about this effing God of yours. And I said, what do you want to know, pal? And he started firing questions at me. And one of the things we got to was the book of Genesis where we decided that we could do it without God and the whole thing crashed, as we call it, the fall. And we went through, I don't know how many, I didn't count the questions, but I was showing him, I got my Bible out of my bag and I'm showing him references, you know, what God says about certain subjects and I'm showing him about things that happen. And then around, it was around 3 a.m., he looked at me, tears started to pour out of his eyes, and he said, Gaz, will you tell God I'm sorry? I blamed him. It wasn't his fault after all. He doesn't drive semi-trailers. And I said, you know what, brother? You can ask him directly. He invites us to speak to him directly, not through anyone else. And I said, he's wanting to hear from you. He loves you, mate. And he's forgiven you everything you've ever done. On that cross, he's forgiven you already. And with that, he just slipped off the chair in the helicopter base, bowed his head and cried and cried and, and really begged God to forgive him. And I, I just touched him on the shoulder. I said, hey, mate, no need to beg. He's already forgiven you. You can thank him for that. So when he died on the cross, that's when he paid for your sin and mine. And he said, thank you. Thank you, Jesus paying for me and he became a very strong Christian and uh, is serving the Lord today but tragedy often doesn't it Steve cause people that to, to sort of wander from God yeah it makes you stop and think sometimes that's for sure yeah. Well, I tell you what, Gary, um, your, your faith is definitely evident in uh, what we've heard today um, now since retiring being in the ambulance service, police rescue very high up in in the police force you've you've since retired you're now a, a chaplain um a branch welfare officer whatever that is in particular but you go around and, and talk to people as a um a, a chaplain i guess is um 
that pretty much what you're doing these days? Yeah, that's right. I'm chaplain of the police post-trauma support groups and and that's what we call a peer support model. So we get a, a, a lot of cops in the room and in a big circle and just share. And we don't diagnose, we don't treat, we don't uh, give advice and guidance. We just li- simply let them vent because um, and part of the job as a chaplain is to allow people to vent what's really got eating them inside, I guess, and uh, and once they get it out, it has some a marked effect on helping them to get through that. And so the other thing too is that we, as chaplain, I get invited to in homes where um, traumatised police officers, their families need to know uh, why they've got PTSD and how to support their loved one. Because uh, often relationships split, and so. Yeah, and so I, I do that. I sadly conduct funerals sometimes for retired police who pass away. I, you know, I go to critical incidents if required to comfort the police and just be available for them if they need that. And so I guess it's um, what we call supportive lurking. And that's a term that I use, um, it's been used before. It means that I'm there to support and just lurking around. I reckon I'm like a fire extinguisher as a chaplain. You know, people go on with their daily lives and the extinguisher sits on the rescue truck or on the wall of the office or station and when there's a bit of smoke or fire, they grab it. And so often I just sit on, you know, hang on the wall there, inverted commas, and they grab me when they need me. And and so I'm available just to listen and, and also to give them the good news. Uh, for what it's like to be a, a Christian and what it's like to survive going through trauma. And uh, also doing workshops on suicide prevention, uh, suicide negotiation, that is. And, uh, I was a suicide crisis negotiator with Police Rescue, talking people down from jumping off buildings and bridges and so on, cliffs. But I teach people now suicide prevention and, and postvention, how to support people after suicide and also do workshops on helping traumatised people and helping to understand trauma. So, And you mentioned welfare. I do welfare in our uh, Retired Police Association branch at Parramatta the Hills and that in, that's visiting cops in hospital who are sick or injured, again going to family homes and, and seeing them through the retired police, some of the issues they have after the job, when everything calms down, they start to reflect. So, yeah, I love doing it. It's really just very, uh, very satisfying, Stu. Mm, it's great. Well, look, thank you so much for uh, having a chat today. Um, remarkable insights, I think, on um, an event that most yeah. of us have probably never heard about. And, you know, hearing the stories of your life as well. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, I mean, we've got the um, Australian Rescue Podcast website, arpodcast.org. But otherwise, apart from that, what's the best way that people can maybe get in touch with you if they want to uh, have a chat or something? Yeah, look, one of the best is, is the good old Facebook. Uh, if they look up uh, Gary Raymond on Facebook, and they'll be able to get me there and there's that private message area of course that we can they just give me their number their phone number or some other way of communicating with them um, love to to support them and, and yeah give them any information advice and guidance that they desire gary raymond 
thank you so much uh, for being with us today and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to chat another time um, about some of the other events you've been involved in, um, in in rescue in Australia and beyond. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Steve, for interviewing me. It's been uh, really, really a blessing. Well, that's it for another Australian Rescue Podcast episode. I hope you really enjoyed that one there. Hey, don't forget to tell your friends about us as well. You can find us at arpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook. Um, just search for the Australian Rescue Podcast. We've got a page and a group as well. So if you're into uh, chatting with other people, being able to share stories and uh, want to know more quickly before the episodes are sort of announced or, or anything like that, Love to hear from you. Uh, just do a big search and uh, we'll let you in the group there as well. But uh, that's it for now. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to have another episode for you in the near future as uh, we just continue to grow this and uh, continue to bring you great stories from the field. In the meantime, have a great week. Stay safe. And as they say, once rescue, always rescue. Uh, Roger, stand by. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast.